you're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview Captain Benny Blanco, and we get an update on Everglades restoration, the importance of talking about environmental issues, and the resiliency of nature. Hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy whose mission is to solve the climate crisis by helping your business go carbon neutral and zero waste. To learn more, visit EmergerStrategies.com. For those of you who may not know um, anything about uh, C- Captain Benny Blanco, um, before we, we we dive into talking about some maybe some environmental things, um, why don't you just give us sort of your background? I believe you grew up in Florida. I know that you're obviously you're a guide there. Got um, well, I'll just I'll just let you run with it. <laughs> sure. So, uh, born and raised in in South Florida. Um, born in Coral Gables, raised in South Southwest Miami. Um, like every single little boy born and raised in South Florida, you you attached to the water one way or another. And um, you know, I couldn't pass a creek or a pond without casting a cast. And you know, I was notoriously late for baseball practice or missed some homework because I was making too many casts or I just <laughs> I couldn't you know couldn't get away from it. And um, and my dad and uncle made a fatal mistake when I was like eight years old and showed me at the Everglades. And I mean, it, my life changed and the fate of the Everglades forever changed because I was terror uh, from that point forward. Um, I literally couldn't, I couldn't sleep without thinking about what I experienced, what I was going to experience. Um, you know, it's like the Everglades is like this, this unwritten movie that every time you go, there's some kind of, you know, there's some kind of plot that's happening and revolving around you and that it's going to be epic and you're not going to want to forget it. And, um, it's just special. And so I fell in love with it. Um, I knew young, very young that I was going to spend a lot more time there. I just didn't know what it was. And I think every young guy before they become a guide doesn't really think that, you know, guiding is a viable career. They just, it's a dream, you know? And, um, I hung my hat on that dream while I went to Georgia Tech and you know stro- strove to be an environmental engineer. I thought I was going to be an environmental engineer. Um, uh, I was heavy in the sciences, got great grades, got scholarships, and thought, you know, I'm going to be an environmental engineer. I'm going to make a difference. And then I did my first internship, and I was like, yep, not going to do that. Um, <laughs> you know, I got to be in the outdoors. I can't be in an office behind a computer screen. That's crazy. And so... Uh, I came back to Miami. I, I started some construction consulting work just to pay the bills so I could get a boat. And, you know, I, I was like the, the consummate, um, you know, animal just never stopping working just so I could get five extra minutes of fishing. And, um, and then fishing became an occupation just naturally, you know, I, I was fishing with friends and then they would bring their dads and, you know, they would ask to come and they'd beg to come and, it was scheduled days to come. And all of a sudden I was guiding before I really was a guide. And, um, and that's how it started. And I don't think I really fully grasped the concept 
that I'm a professional fishing guy until probably maybe five years ago. And I, this is my, tw- I'm going to my 23rd year. So, um, you know, it's, it's a dream realized and, um, it's really a product of the amazing fisheries that surround us here in the state of Florida. Yeah. And, um, and so I realized that dream and realized that it's extremely special and unique and, um, and I felt an obligation, a responsibility to not just myself, but to the industry, but most importantly, to the places that molded who I am um, to speak up because they do not have a voice unless we speak up. And so that's how I've got to where I am. Um, I'm a very passionate fishing guy. I put everything I, I, I am, everything of my soul into every single day. And, um, I think all the best guides are that way. I, I, you know, I don't think any great guide has ever left anything on the table. Um, when it comes to a day of fishing, whether it be a tournament day or just a day of fishing. And, um, and I apply that pretty much throughout my life. So when I started getting involved in the water issues, that's just kind of how I played it. You know, um, it's either all or nothing. We either we're going to fix this or, or we're not going to talk about it. And, and I'm about fixing it. I, you know, I want to have a conversation with my grandkids one day that we did everything in our power to save these places for them. And uh, I never want to have that conversation that there could have been something else we could do. Yeah. And so, um, so that's, what's driving my life. And that's where I, that's why I'm talking to you here. <laughs> um, well, that's awesome. There's um, I feel like we are living parallel lives um, in, 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 in some ways because um, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, um, here in the, in the, in the low country and, uh, you know, same, just sort of grew up fishing and was a little, uh, river rat and, um, you know, couldn't, couldn't keep me away from the, the water growing up and, um, now having, um, a daughter and, uh, uh, another child on the way, um, you really, start to think about, um, I, I guess you just, you feel that, that sense of responsibility to make sure that you're able to, um, share, um, the things that you love with, with your children, but also not only share it, but, um, allow them to sort of have their own experience with it. And, um, that's something that, you know, I, I feel strongly about when it comes to, uh, to, to protecting our waterways and um, for me and in my business um, with, with with climate change also and the impact on on our fisheries. So um, my hat's off to you and and, and completely uh, can can relate. The other thing I'll say is um, the Everglades. So I go down there with some friends from Savannah. We started going five years ago. Um, just trying to sort of figure it out on our own if, which of course we haven't, of course you never can, but, um, but just, you know, same guys that I grew up fishing with when we were just little kids and grew up together. And that place is so special and we've only experienced it. Like uh, we wind up camping either in the chickies or um, at, at the Flamingo campground three or four nights a year. And so we, we have this like really small window that we're able to get out there every year and enjoy it, but we love it. It's, it's one of our most anticipated trips of the year. Um, and 
I can't, I can't imagine everything that you've seen over guiding there for over 20 plus years. And so I'll, I'll preface, or I, I guess I'll, I'll tell that sort of story about the Everglades to say, I know that there has been a lot of water issues with the Everglades. We're, you know, the, the now or never glades, the, 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 there was a lot of um, publicity uh, going on to, to restore the flow, the water flows south. And I was wondering if, A, there, there may be people listening to this show that maybe aren't even familiar with some of those issues. Um, so maybe if you could provide just a, a, brief, a brief background and then, you know, where are we today in that fight? Absolutely. Uh, happy to. I appreciate, again, the platform to be able to educate. Um, uh, you know, I highly encourage anyone who's listening who doesn't understand um, and may not fully understand after I explain it to go to captainstrickling.org. There's a great description of what's going on. You can go to everybody'sfoundation.org and it's the same thing. Um, it's really important that everyone in the industry understands what's going on because like you just pointed out, the Everglades isn't just my backyard. It's literally everyone's place. It's everyone's special place. And it would be a travesty and a tragedy if um, there are people out there, fishermen like you and I, living in alternate universes, you know, you know, uh, parallel universes and never getting a chance to experience the Everglades because we let it you know, Walter. And, uh, that's, that would be a tragedy. So, uh, I highly encourage anyone who's listening to go to those places and, and learn more, but, but the general synopsis, what's happening in the Everglades is about a hundred years ago. Um, the government thought it would be a great idea to drain the swamp. And that's, that's where that, 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 um, saying came from. Um, and it was in the name of progress. They didn't know any better. They thought if they drained it, they, that we could cultivate it, you know, it would be great farmland. And it was, um, it's great property lands. People can live there and they can raise cattle. And, and it was, and they did a great job of draining it. Um, in the 1920s, Lake Okeechobee over flooded because we had two big hurricanes. And when they over flooded, when it over flooded, it killed thousands and thousands of people. And it's not like killing thousands of people here today. It would be like the equivalent of killing millions of people here today. It was a major event. And um, they, as a result, and rightfully so, so built the Herbert Hoover Dyke and the dike is meant to hold water inside Lake Okeechobee so that it never overflows and threatens those communities. Um, the problem is that over that, that last hundred years, we have filled the lake with legacy nutrients from agriculture and urban runoff. It is, even if we took the dike down and let water flow from the lake right now, it would completely destroy the Everglades. Hmm. There's so much nitrogen and phosphorus in that muck in the lake that it would destroy everything in its path. Um, and the lake is in constant jeopardy of having issues there. And that's why you see algal blooms in the lake regularly. Um, it's pretty well publicized. And, uh, and that's why we have major problems in South Florida. Um, but right now, we have no mechanism to treat that water and send it down into Everglades National Park. And that's the root of the, of the biggest of the, of the problem here in South Florida. Florida Bay at the southern end of the Everglades system, which is where I fish, it's the bay of bays. It is the, it's the bay to which all other bays on the planet are measured. 60% of the permit and bonefish world records have come from Florida Bay. Um, something like 80% of the tarpon that are born and raised in the state of Florida come from Florida Bay or somewhere in the Everglades that attach to Florida Bay. It is, it is the most critical estuarying um, bay in the state of Florida uh, and to our entire fishery. Um, and it is constantly 
in a hyper in a situation of hyper salinity, um, and which is which is for lack of a better term, just too much salt water. Um, it's constantly saltier than seawater. Seawater sea water measures at 35 parts per thousand, and we're constantly at 38 to 40 parts per thousand. So we, we're in this, this teetering in this, this realm of verge of major algal blooms constantly. Uh, and it's because we're not getting the fresh water through the Everglades, the Everglades that we, we should. And, um, but even worse than that, and that's bad enough, but even worse than that, because we can't send, lot, send water from Lake Okeechobee south, whenever we have a major rain event, the dike is threatened. The lake gets too full. And if that dike was to burst, millions of people would die. So the Army Corps of Engineers has no choice but to send water into the Clusahatchee and the St. Lucie Rivers. And when they do that, it destroys Charlotte Harbor and Stewart and Port St. Lucie and those estuaries that don't ever get, aren't ever supposed to get fresh water. But just for adding fresh water to those estuaries alone would be terrible and destructive. But you're adding nutrient-laden fresh water from Lake Okeechobee that's high in phosphorus and, and nitrogen. It just destroys the flats, kills all the oysters. And, and you know, the, the videos and the pictures are, are well documented. You can go anywhere on social media and see it. It's, it's devastating. You know, you have three major world-class estuaries, fisheries, that are completely devastated because we rerouted the water in Everglades National Park. And, uh, and so that's the, the baseline, the foundation for our fight. Um, it's, it's not just people in Florida Bay fighting. It's not just people in Clusahatchee. It's, it's all of us. And, um, you know, we're learning more and more every day the effects of Everglades restoration on, just, on not just fishing, but every Floridian's way of life at this point. Um, the Biscayne Aquifer, which provides all the fresh water for Broward and Dade and Monroe County, um, is directly, a, directly linked to the health of the Everglades. So when the Everglades isn't healthy, the aquifer's in jeopardy. And when the aquifer is in jeopardy, we not only do, is our water in jeopardy, but saltwater intrusion is a major problem. The aquifer can't battle the saltwater intruding under, this, under our shorelines if it's not healthy. So there's all this domino effect that's caused by us rerouting the water in Everglades National Park. Wow. So now what we're trying to do right now is rewrite history. We are trying to re-energize political will and funding to redirect that water, to treat it correctly and send it down into, into the Everglades like it was supposed to be. And if we do that, we can save three major world-class fisheries. We can save the aquifer. We can, we can highly combat saltwater intrusion. And, um, and we can see tourism booming again in South Florida. Um, and that's, so that's, our, that's, that's the story. Um, there's a lot more to it. It's super complicated. And so I highly recommend everyone go to casualtycleanwater.org or, or everglades.foundation.org. Um, and learn more about it because it's, you know, um, it is, I think, going to be the defining fight for our, our generation, uh, for our legacy. And, um, and we're, we've got the competition on the ropes. We are finally making progress. And, and it's all because of things like this, you know, us reaching out and, and educating people and getting everyone involved. Yep. Um, so, but, but it's not just... So not to to take light of Everglades because Everglades is certainly the 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 I guess um, the heavyweight I guess and in, in the fight if if you'd say I mean everyone recognizes that we need to send the water or I should say not everyone recognizes I learned through Everglades Foundation and and, and from people like you that we need to send the water south um, that we're basically 
in in sort of simple layman's terms, you know, we're it's it's we're we're sort of uh, choking it to death. It's it's not getting um, it's like restrictive blood flow almost. You know, it's not it's not getting um, it's it's life lifeline, um, which is that, that fresh water. And but that's just one area, albeit a major one. These problems it sounds like are happening elsewhere um, on the Florida coast, not just in the, in the Everglades, Florida Bay area. Is that, is that right? That's correct. So this, the Everglades issue affects three major watersheds. Um, the ones I described, the, the Coosahatchee, the St. Lucie and Florida Bay. Um, that affects every county, uh, every one of those counties. I mean, in, in the state of Florida, uh, our tourism industry is number one. There is, I mean, there, after that, there's nothing else. We're, we're farming rocks if we don't have tourism in the state of Florida. Um, and the water quality is the foundation for all of that. So um, that's the that's the effect for South Florida. However, um, through the, the fishing sh- the TV show that I've created, Guiding Flow TV, I was able to go around the state of Florida and really explore what the water issues all around the state of Florida, outside of the Everglades watershed. And um, it's certainly more complicated than that. They, they, but however, they all share a common baseline, which is, you know, urban development and human impact is, is detrimental to every single watershed. And we do it without blinking an eye. And um, we do it without consideration for the environment. And in places like Florida, like the Georgia coast, like the South Carolina coast, like Texas, like Louisiana coast, we very much have to consider our environmental impact prior to any developmental impact. And we're not doing that. We're doing the opposite. Um, and we're constantly putting the environment, our watersheds and the health of our, our estuaries at risk with every single move we make. Um, you know, fertilizer runoff is a huge issue. Sewage and septic uh, infrastructure is a huge issue. Um, you know, the state of Florida is, is limestone. So we're in a porous rock. And I don't know who had the great idea of putting sewage in the ground, thinking that it wouldn't cause any problems, you know, obviously wasn't, had very little brain cells, you know, like it doesn't make any sense. So we have, you know, millions of septic tanks putting sewage directly above our wa- our aquifer and our watershed. It just, I mean, it makes no sense. And so we're in this constant state of catching up with what, with reality and, um, Unfortunately, it's at the detriment of our watersheds and our fisheries. Um, and unfortunately, even further fortunate than that, are the fishermen are the ones that see it first. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm 23 years in and I'm 23 years tired of watching my fishery die. Um, I'm just done with it. And I know that every single fisherman has experienced the same thing. If you've been on the water for five minutes, you've seen it. And yeah. so that's why I've, uh, I've dedicated the rest, you know, my, my free time to educating as many people in the industry as possible. Because, uh, you know, one thing I've learned is that you can't fake passion. Passion is, is, you know, unfakeable. You know, you can fake how well you live and, you know, you can, social media will give this impression that everything's great, but you can't fake passion. You know, passion is, and passion comes with loving something. And And one thing we have in common, whether you're a hunter, you're a fisherman, inshore, offshore, fly, sight, live bait you love the water and the land that you touch and no one is going to fight for it more than you yeah. period i don't care if you're an environment organization if you're a politician you know um who's charged with protecting that land i don't care if you're going to make a million dollars off that land you don't fight for it like the people who love it and we love it and so um 
well, all I've been doing is educating and going to these areas, you know, I was just in Jacksonville and my new show coming out this past this next weekend is about the St. John's river and the watershed, how it's affected by lack of fresh water and, and, the, and all the nutrients in the system. And, and, you know, we'll be on the opposite side of the coast and in Tampa doing the same thing. And, um, all, all of our issues are very similar. Um, but we're connected in more than that, you know, we're connected for, you know, for financial reasons, you know, for example, if, if, if the Charlotte Harbor's in danger because there's red tide and there's, there's discharges and all those guides have to make a living, guess what? They're going to Tampa and they're coming to the Everglades and they're displacing and we're putting additional pressure on other fisheries. That's, that's one way we're connected. The other way we're connected is that as an industry, we have such a more powerful voice when we stand up together than if we individually stand up and fight. And so, um, you know, one thing that has to come from podcasts like this, from the TV show and from any other outlet that we have is that we need to stand together. Um, we need to have a unified voice. We need to explain to the outside world who doesn't necessarily understand how important our water is, not just fishing, but to our entire economy all over the country. And so, um, and so that's what I've been doing. And, and, you know, you hit it on the head. Everglades is, is maybe the biggest elephant in the room, but it's not the only and um, as, a, as an industry, the more we learn about what's going on in our watersheds and we stand together, the, more, the higher the likelihood is of us being able to fix it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, the, there, there's a couple of things that, that you were mentioning that made me think of because it's not something that I talk a lot about on, the, on this podcast that I feel like um, – maybe gets looked over, but you know, what you're talking about with, you know, agricultural runoff and stormwater runoff and development, the, the environmental impact of development. And these are all the types of things that um, are, you know, you could, you could try and explain just as simple as, Hey, it rains and it rains on concrete and that water flows somewhere. Where does it go? And it's got to go, it's got to find its way to sewage, to drain. And where does that lead? That leads to the bay, to the river, to the creek, whatever the case may be. And the more of that that there is, uh, then the bigger the problem is. And um, over the course of, you know, how 50, 100 years of, of development in Florida, we I feel like it, you know, we now have reached this time where it's gone, all right, well, you this is inherently unsustainable. You cannot continue down this path um, without risking this. And in this case, it's the environment and, and the fishery. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because it, it's not, um, it's not something that, you, that people talk about ever really. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, that's, and honestly, that's why, I started the fishing show. I was like, you know, how, how do we reach more people? How do we make this conversation commonplace? How do we make, take it from taboo? And, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I was shunned initially for speaking about it. You know, we're, you're not, you're sending people away from here. I'm losing charters because you're talking about bad water. And, you know, dude, we have to start talking about it. I mean, there's yeah. no way around it. So um, that's why I started the fishing show. You know, I can get people to watch fishing. I mean, the, the cool thing about Florida is that we have unbelievable fisheries. So to, to make a fishing show is easy um, to talk about water and make it interesting and make people want to learn more about it. It's very hard. Yeah. Um, so um, it, it has to be 
a topic of conversation, but even more so than that, it has to be our number one issue for all legislation going forward. You know, we have to address environmental issues before we decide we're going to build a new condominium or we're going to, we're going to lay more sewage in, in a, in a, in a coastal area, you know, um, or we're going to remove more mangroves or, or, or marshland. Like, you know, we, we have to consider the environmental impact before we do things like that, because when we don't, we pay for it in tenfold later on. Yeah. And, um, and all you got to do is look in, I mean, you're, you're damn close to South Carolina and Charleston that, you know, they got, they have water in the street like once a day. Oh, I mean, it, it, so, so, so here, here's the stat on that, by the way, this is crazy. So it 50 years ago, it was uh, five times a year that the downtown would flood. 2019 record 89 days. I mean, that's, that's, ins- that's insane. So the, the current route road we're going on, they're going to be living under what there's going to be Venice in South Carolina. Yeah. You know, I mean, at what point do we all stand back and say, yo, we have to change the way we address these things. And, um, you know, maybe a seawall isn't necessarily the best engineered idea. You know, maybe marshland was right, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so when we learn things like that in areas like that, that are super affected, we need to apply it in other places so that we don't make that same mistake over and over again with, and we constantly are doing that. We're constantly doing that. In Louisiana, in Louisiana, they lose a what is equivalent to a football field of marshland every 100 minutes. And and when or at what point are we going to stand up and say that's enough? Then we have to do something about it. Um, you know, and we can't address it on a localized. It can't be addressed only localized. It's got to be a coastal wide effort. It has to be our entire industry. Um, it can't just be South Carolina, you know, it can't just be Charleston working to protect Charleston because then in Hilton Head, there's going to be a problem. And then in Georgia, there's going to be a problem. And then in Jacksonville, there's going to be a problem. Like, you know, we got to learn and apply it everywhere. And, um, and that's, and that's why this is important to talk about it. You're right though. I, I, what, what does it take to get everyone on that same page and say, Hey, look, what, you know, basically what makes your area unique? You know, we're like, oh, it's the low country, South Carolina, pluff mud, marshes and oysters, barrier islands. Okay, well, let's use that to solve these problems. Right. Right. I agree. I mean, um, unfortunately, it's, it takes major events. Um, in South Florida, it took literally the destruction of three world class fisheries for everyone to stand up and say, OK, that's enough. Uh, you know, let's, let's fight for it. Even then we had still had to fight. So, um, you know, we got to circumvent that somehow. And the good news is that we are in the middle of a movement and a cultural change in the industry. Um, and you, I mean, I'm like a broken record on social media and people think I'm nuts because I'm constantly talking about it. But when a company in the industry decides, you know what, we're going to invest in this and, you know, Benny, we want to help you spread the word. I, I blast them all over the planet because that needs to be the example for the rest of the industry. Everybody needs to stand up. Yeah. Um, not just a stupid guy from Everglades National Park, but every guy. Not just a fly fishing company from Montana, but every company. And um, and we're you know again, if we were to combine you know the, what we've learned over the last 30, 40 years with coast with our coastal estuaries, with our with our watershed issues, with stormwater and sewage and septic, and we combine it all and put it all together, we could really make an impact right now, not 20 years from now. Um, and my fear is that 
is that, you know, while we're in the middle of this movement and cultural change is happening and people are addressing it and more companies are becoming involved, that it's going to be a little bit too late in some places. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to go far, farther than Monsieur Lagoon. I mean, talk to any guide who makes a living in Monsieur Lagoon and it'll be enough to send you to depression. Um, they've lost possibly the best red fishing fishery in the planet in the course of the last 10 years. It's gone from clean water, grass flats, you know, more redfish than you can uh, ever dream of, um, to, to the point where Flip Pallet moved from the Everglades National Park to Biscayne Lagoon. I mean, think about that for a second. I would leave Everglades where I could catch bonefish, permit, tarpon, snook, redfish, and go to Mesquite Lagoon just to go red fishing. That's how good it was. Um, and now it's a mud pit. You can't see an inch under the surface of the water. And they're constantly battling brown tide and fish kills and all kinds of issues. They can't get their, their heads around it. There's, there's a conservation organizations fighting over what the, the solution is. It's, it is a, it's a tragedy. And we allowed it to happen in my lifetime. I saw it when it was at its prime. And in my lifetime, it's gone to zero. Um, it's, it should be the red flag for every single fishery that we know. Um, if it can happen to Mesquite Lagoon, where there's engaged community all around it, and, and it's, it's world class, and people see it and talk about it, if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. Um, if everybody's National Park could be in jeopardy for so long, and it's not being fixed until we stood up and spoke up, that should be another red flag. That if it can happen in the Everglades, which is a nationally protected, federally protected park, it can happen anywhere. So, um, you know, it, there's examples of successes and there's examples of tragedies everywhere. And we got it. We have to learn from the tragedies um, if we're going to see more successes. Well, on, on, on the note of some of the successes that we're, that, that we're talking about, what has... Um, what have been some of those success stories and maybe what was the, what moved the needle? What, what made those get the attention needed to, to change policy and things like that? Sure. Um, there's success stories all over, but, but Tampa's a good one. Um, Tampa Bay in the eighties was a cesspool. I mean, it literally was green water full of sewage, not a blade of grass, no fish. It was left for dead. It looked like mosquito lagoon basically. And they started taking control of their wastewater, start, started fertilizer ordinances, started controlling the sewage and septic and invested in infrastructure. And now there's grass plots again. The fishing in Tampa Bay is, is strong. I mean, they have other issues and they're still battling issues. There's no doubt, but they brought it back from nothing. Um, Everglades Restoration is a huge success story. I mean, Charlotte Harbor, at, at the rate that they were going, um, was going to see three or four more years of discharges in the last three years. Instead, we've, you know, we've, since we've been working so hard with the Army Corps and the South Florida Water Management District, we were able to convince and work with the Army Corps to deviate from their booked schedule and how they discharge water the last two summers. And as a result, the grass flats are coming back. All the, the baits back, the fishing is back. They got clean water again for the first time in four years. Like our fisheries show over and over and over again that they will bounce back if we just take our foot off their neck, you know, and um, those are, there's success stories everywhere. Um, and it all comes down to the community around those areas becoming highly engaged, educated, engaged, and not taking no for an answer. Um, just a perfect example of what I said before that, you know, when we stand up and speak up, you know, we, we can't be 
shushed, who can't be pushed aside. Um, and the issues have to be addressed. Um, I mean, in the state of Florida in 2018, for the first time in political history, water quality was the number one issue. I mean, we have politicians all over the state who won their entire campaign based on their stance on water quality. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a model for the rest of the country. You know, uh, the, the, it wasn't just fishermen who stood up because there's not enough fishermen in the state to stand up and make a difference like that. It was literally getting all communities all over the state engaged. You know, um, local business owners, real estate, you know, um, imagine if you live your entire life in Wyoming and with the, the, with the, the dream of one day retiring and, and buying a house in South Florida, and you did that. You worked 60 years and you saved a you know, million dollars and you bought your house on, on the St. Lucie River and it's this big, beautiful property and you just moved in and then they discharged from Lake Okeechobee and you got blue to green algae and dead fish all over your backyard. Um, that isn't just you know, a, a, a threat, that actually happened. It is, it's happened several times already. Um, businesses who have been in business for decades and generations shut down, gone. Um, and that's happened all over the state of Florida. And that was enough to engage everybody. And so uh, while we're seeing these, these major tragedies all over the state and these, these negative-ish things happen, it usually results in engaged community and positive things coming from it. And so we're seeing those positive wins all over. Well, I think, too, the, the, the awesome thing about um, what you're talking about with some of these success stories and I've, I have had similar conversations with other people is just the resiliency of nature. And, right. and what you just said is like, if you just take your foot off its neck and let it breathe, it will come back, but right. you can't full throttle down on this and continue on this, same path without drastic repercussions um, and, and, and reaching a point of no return. Um, so I think that that's a one that to me is really hopeful and, and sort of hearing that when you hear about, Hey, the grass flats are returning, you know, like, so what does that mean? Well, guess what? The bait fish came back. What does that mean? Well, guess what? That brought that, you know, it, it just, the, that whole cycle is super hopeful. But then the other component of what you're talking about you know, with, with your TV show and, and, as, and, and organizations like Captains for Clean Water is getting that community education and engagement to where that's to at least in my opinion, I guess that's where the real rubber meets the road because then you're able to affect policy, which is systemic change. That's right. the type of change that says, no, this is what we're doing. This is where we're putting the, the tax dollar. That's right. And, we, and, and, and that was a huge learning curve for us. Um, we started fighting in 15 and 16, and we would go to Tallahassee and D.C. And, you know, politicians were impressed that we were there, but they didn't listen at all. Um, 2017, they listened a little bit, but had conditioned responses. In 2018, the difference was we had created a movement and we had thousands of people writing emails and thousands of people voting in the right direction. And, um, you know, we're f all over the, the country. All of our issues are a result of some type of special interest, you know, could be, it could be builders. It could be agriculture. It could be, you know, policymakers. It could be a, a number of things, but 
you know, the one thing that's more powerful than money and donations is people. And, um, you know, you can buy all the politicians you want, but when we have the power to vote them out of office, we have more power than that money. And that's what we've learned. And, um, uh, 2018 was the year that we taught all the politicians that they need to make water quality a number one issue. Um, and if we continue to push this movement in the right direction, then we can affect systematic change uh, for policymakers and legislature all over the country. Um, but that goes back to what I was saying. We can do that very quickly and effectively if we stand up as an industry and not just on a localized level. Um, we do need to have local progress. You know, it's, you know, I, the state of Florida can't fix every sewage infrastructure issue. Um, you know, Miami-Dade County has to take care of their sewage infrastructure. Jacksonville needs to take care of the sewage infrastructure, but it needs to be a system-wide uh, addressing of those issues. It has to be from localized all the way up to the state and then up to the feds. And the only way we can get that kind of movement is if the entire industry, outdoor community stands up together. And it's already happening. We're already doing it. You saw Pebble Mine. We turned that around. Um, Everglades Restoration, everybody's standing up on the same path. Um, with, with the marshland disappearing and, and sea level rise, with the climate change, you're going to see exactly the same thing. Um, we're engaging this community. We're giving them the power to, to learn about these issues and make their own judgment, their own um, opinion, but to join in the fight in this movement that, that environment is way more important than development. Um, and, you know, we can't just only address, you know, new development. Like, you know, we got 10,000 new homes coming in Miami-Dade County and they're all gonna be on sewage and so we're good. No, no, we're not good. We have to address the, inf the existing infrastructure at the same time. Otherwise, we can't allow new houses to come in because we're, you know, like you said, we, we got our foot on the, on the neck of the environment. We have to let up. We have to address going forward. We also have to fully address what we've done in the past so that it can rejuvenate itself because it will. Yeah, and 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 to the the another just point that 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 you made that's interesting too, you know, with with the infrastructure and and development, because it's so unsexy and it's so just it just is, you know. I mean, it's infrastructure. Hey, don't it is what it is. Don't tell me about what's happening under underneath the ground. I you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, is 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 most people's mindset if they put any sort of thought into it at all. Um, but I think that, again, going back to what we were talking about with not only nature being resilient and your point about, hey, if you give people the the the, the tools that, that they'll show up and, and they'll do what's right, um, I think that to me is another um, hopeful message that, that is really powerful when it comes to um, whether it be we're talking about water quality issues, whether we're talking about climate change, whether it's, hey, look, that that to me is 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 the takeaway. Um, is if we want to really improve and and leave a, a positive environmental legacy um, for our kids, then and, and grandchildren, then you know we really need to be thinking about the Im the impact of our decisions, not only today but for future generations, but to all of the examples that you've laid out today on the call, this is kind of, a, to me, a roadmap for how it's done. Like this is the toolkit, right? It's right. everything that y'all have done with your organization that it, it works. It worked. Right. That's right. It's, I mean, that's, that's a huge positive. I mean, cause five years ago we didn't know that it would work. 
I mean, we were actually told it would never work, that we could never change anything, that we'd never see everybody's restoration because there was so many things going against us and, and the, you know, and the special interests were lobbied so hard and they have millions and millions of dollars to spend and we never make it, but we did and we are. And we, we've created just by default, by not giving up, by, by, by sharing the passion that we have for the places that we love with everyone, we've created this model that can be used all over. And, um, and I, what I don't want to see is that, you know, we fought and did all this stuff and we've making positive change here, but then a fishery, your fishery dies because we didn't apply that learning there. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to what I said before that, you know, we have to learn from those successes and the failures so that we can apply it industry-wide. Um, because we, we are in a precipice of, losing a lot of our fisheries and um and in turn putting undue pressure on other fisheries that could never sustain it and uh, and not learning from the from the from the positives and the negatives everywhere else and uh, that would be a major travesty i mean especially now in the day age day and age we live in now where information is so easily spread i mean with a simple tv show my my average uh my average episode seeing 1.7 million households like that blows my mind That's that we unreal. can that we can reach that many people on a weekly basis. And there's there's no reason why we can't educate everyone, why everyone can't be involved, why we can't as an industry stand up and say that is freaking enough. This is our water. You're not going to do this anymore. You have to address it going forward or we're going to make change happen. And um, we're doing it here in South Florida. And there's no reason why we can't do it all over the coast. Yeah. Well, I think that that's probably a really powerful, positive uh, message to to think about wrapping with. That said, I, we haven't really talked about fishing, and we're on the sustainable. <laughs> that's that's always that's always my problem. <laughs> I do the same thing. I'm on, it, it, then I'm like at the end of it, I'm like, oh man, I didn't even like. I, yeah. I didn't even get any good intel from from all these amazing yeah. well, anglers. When you get me started on water issues, I could talk for days straight. I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll lose my voice yelling about it. So, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say uh, before we do talk just just a little bit of fishing, I sincerely uh, would like to say thank you for 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 all you do. And um, as someone who gets down to Florida, like I said, just on an annual trip with with some buddies and, um, and albeit that's, that, that's not a lot, but that fishery means a lot to me and my yeah. friends. And, um, it's great to know that there's people, um, that care and there's thousands of people, but, um, but everything that you're doing is, is incredible. So just thank you for, for that. I appreciate that, man. Likewise, um, this, this is a good opportunity for us to spread the information. And I mean, like, it's val- super valuable to have platforms all over. I mean, there's, there's a lot of podcasts now and you know, some of them, are, they reach the same people over and over again. So to have some versatility and ability to reach more people is so huge. So I'm very appreciative of it, man. Really do appreciate yeah, it very much. Absolutely. Um, all right. Now let's talk a little fishing. Uh, okay. <laughs> all right. So your guide, you've been a guide Everglades, South Florida, 23 years. Yep. Um, obviously opportunities for 
bonefish, permit, tarpon, snook, redfish. I mean, and that's just inshore, right? I mean, you're you're not that far from a quick quick scoot to some pelagics. Yeah, I mean, in South Florida, it, you know, it gets the the that title of sport fishing capital of the world, and it is. There couldn't be anything more true than that. I mean, um, to the point where I've been out in my skiff and caught sailfish and tuna. And, you know, within a 24-hour period, I was catching bonefish, permit, and tarpon. And, um, you know, uh, it's the only fishery on the planet that exists where you can target the big five, snook, redfish, permit, bonefish, and tarpon in the same day. And um, there are a lot of guys who do it all the time. And um, it just is so unique and special. And it's a result of that crazy good estuary that comes from Everglades National Park that's created by that unique biodiverse system. Um, you know, like I said before, 60% of the permit and bonefish records, world records have come from Florida Bay. That's, that's huge. Cause you know, there are major fishing destinations all over the planet for permit and bonefish yeah. to say that all the big ones have come from Florida Bay. That's a big deal. Um, yeah. you know, that by it's just the history relevance alone should be enough reason to want to save it. But the fact that you can come down from Georgia and come and and target those species in a day's drive, almost. Yep. That's, that's pretty damn special. No, it's it's super. That's one of the things that we, me and my my buddies, I mean, that we love about it. We're like, man, like we're gonna we're gonna drive down to Flamingo, and granted, we usually break it up, but regardless, within a within <laughs> a within a twelve hour drive, like we're gonna be in an entirely different world. Than what we right. fish in, in in the low country and just a, a different style and type of fishing and it's just it's it's exciting and it, and it's crazy that it's almost in your backyard you know I mean if you're a twelve hour drive that, I mean that's a drive but it's not right. that crazy you know I mean it's it's, it's reachable it's yeah. it's reachable and it's and it's there and um, you know it's so special and it took a while for me to really appreciate how special it was because I grew up with it right here yeah you know but then. You know, I, I fished on the FLW uh, Redfish Tour and the, the Redfish Cup for a little while, and I got to fish other fisheries, and, man, it quickly realized that, holy cow, there's nothing that compares to the Everglades. just doesn't. Um, and then, you know, when we started to lose parts of it, and it was threatened, and I, there was a time where I was concerned Florida Bay wasn't going to make it. I, you know, it was very difficult for me to wrap my head around the fact that we could lose something like this. And I, we came, you know, it's that old saying, you don't realize how something, how important something is until you lose it. And, um, and that very much uh, occurred here and it occurred with a lot of people. And so um, it's special to have this place. You know, I, I, I mean, you look at my, any of my, my accounts, my Instagram account, my Facebook account, and you're like, this guy's gotta be full of crap. There's no way he caught a bonefish today. He was snook fishing yesterday, you know, <laughs> Or he just dropped a hundred pound tarpon and now he's, you know, he's fishing for redfish. Like that, how does that even happen? But the Everglades is the only way to explain it. It's just special and unique and um, it's everyone's Everglades. And we, it is absolutely our responsibility to do everything we can to save it. Not just for us. Cause you know, God, heaven help me if I don't have it to fish tomorrow. Right. But, but I can't even imagine what I would tell my grandkids if it wasn't there. And I, you know, I couldn't explain to them that I did everything in my power to save it. Yeah. So, um, exactly. you know, fishing, fishing down here is, is, you know, it's world-class. There's no doubt. That's every fiber of that saying is completely true. 
Um, all right. And then I'm going to ask a, what are some of your favorite flies to fish in the, in, in, in the Everglades for different types of species? I'm just. Sure. So, um, in the Everglades for tarpon, every color is good as long as it's black. Yeah. Black is, <laughs> black is, is, is the color. Yeah. Um, okay. I like to mix in some contrast when I'm fishing black for tarpon. Um, you know, contrast is good, not heavy contrast, but contrast, a purple, um, uh, you know, a red, uh, I'll mix in some orange sometimes just, just to have a little bit of contrast, but that, that really is to help a fish that's actually seeing the fly. Most of the time, it's really just about having a silhouette uh, and black is the perfect silhouette. Um, size of the fly and type of fly is determined by uh, the water depth you're fishing in and location, you know, cause everybody's so diverse. You could be fishing in a river where there's a lot of current and deep water, or you could be fishing in a, in a cove that's two foot of water and soft bottom, you know? So um, it really depends, but I, you know, I'll, I'll typically go with, uh, a bunny strip type tail in the three to four inch range overall with some type of floating head. Um, and, uh, I'll probably be in, uh, a Gamagatsu SL size one hook for tarpon for the most part. Um, I like short shanks, super sharp, um, the ability to really bury, uh, the, the, the bite, um, the tarpon in the glades are not shy. They're there to eat. They're not there to do any, there's no socializing. There's no partying. They're there to eat. It's like, it's like working all day on the water and then going to, to longhorns. Like you're not there to talk about beer. You, you're like, where's the steak? You know, I want to eat something. And that's what the tarpon do in the glades. So um, it's really about finding something big and uh, something they're able to see. Um, I like bunny because it has a little bit of natural movement, um, but those, those fish doesn't take much to talk them into biting. Uh, for snook and redfish in the glades, it really is about the drop. Um, mm. I think I find that in most fisheries, honestly. So I like a fly that swims, but also drops. Yeah. Um, so I'll tie B-chain at the very least, uh, if not some weight on the eyes. Um, something that's got some natural movement like marabou or bunny um, and some body to push water because we're usually dealing with some dirty water situations. So you want to have some pushing ability, pushing and drop. Um, again, black is really good color, but you can also with redfish and snook get away with really bright colors, you know, chartreuse and white, pink, yeah. orange. Um, the fish in the glades aren't about really convincing that it's something they need to eat. They just need to see it. So if you can get them to see it without spooking them, it's a pretty damn good shot. They're going to eat it. <laughs> and, um, and then it really comes down to the angler setting the hook. So, um, the glades, that's pretty much the glades. Uh, and that varies throughout the glades. Cause you could be, you know, in brackish water, that's dark and dirty. And then you could be in Florida Bay that's clean and crystal clear. And obviously you have to make an adjustment there. Um, um but the same general principles apply. Um, and then when you get out of the glades and you go further towards the keys and you're in bluer water and you're fishing bonefish and permit, um, natural colors are crucial. Uh, the bonefish really like browns and oranges. Um, they like barring. Um, the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust put out a report a few years ago that like something like 60% of the, the forage foods for permanent bonefish have some type of barring on them. Really? Um, shrimp or worms or mussels. Um, and that's why you'll see a lot of the legs with barring. You'll see tails with barring. 
you'll see even bodies now with barring. I put barring on everything. I mean, if it moves and it's got barring on it, most of the time the permit and the bumpers are going to go to check it out. Right. And, um, and so I'm, um, I think a spawning shrimp is probably the most overall fished uh, fly for both species. Um, you can, a crab's also going to gonna like a, a permit. I mean, sorry, a, a permit is also going to like a crab more than, <laughs> more than anything else. Um, but that can be, that can be really tricky, you know, cause the crabs aren't the same in different bodies of water down here. You, know, you got a blue crab versus a past crab versus a rock crab, you know, and you're trying to match the hash. And I think overall, I think most of my, my bites for bonefish and permit have been on some type of spawning shrimp variation. Interesting. And, um, and, I've, and the bonefish I hear are making a pretty nice little comeback too. Um, yeah, I mean, we're definitely not what we were 25 years ago, but, um, but the bonefish populations in the last five years have gone up considerably and, awesome. um, we can, we can directly re- relate that to conservation efforts, bonefish and tarpon trust, identifying that 90 something percent of our bonefish come from Cuba and Mexico. Um, just the way that they spawn and the larvae hitting the Gulf stream, uh, all of our fish come from up there, from down there. And then they, they swim upstream to, to the, some type of brackish estuary where they grow up and they live in almost fresh water for most of their childhood um, before they become actual bonefish. And um, so by learning that, it, it made them work with you know, foreign governments to protect bonefishing, bonefish and permit, uh, to stop long, uh, long lining and netting and inshore, and inshore fisheries. And that happened about eight to 10 years ago. And as a result, we're seeing those recruit classes from those, you know, those bonefish that were protected eight, 10 years ago starting to show up now. So we have the real possibility of rejuvenating all of our permanent bonefish stocks. Um, if we can continue those efforts and continue to, to restore our habitat and protect water quality here in South Florida, we could have, you know, we could have the Bahamas again. You ask Flip or Chico and they'll flat out tell you the bonefishing in Biscayne Bay dwarfed the Bahamas. The Bahamas didn't even stand a chance compared to Biscayne Bay. Can you imagine that? If we had Bahamas fishery in Biscayne wow. Bay? Oh, my God. I, I, would, I would never fish for anything else. Yeah. Bonefishcharters.com. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> We're going to catch 100 today, you know? Um, and that's a real possibility, you know, if, you know, now knowing what we know, and that's the awesome part about, you know, educating ourselves and becoming involved and speaking up is that, is that we not only can we do we stand a chance of protecting these places, but we can actually restore something that we've never seen in our lifetime. That's pretty awesome. That is awesome. Um, all right, I think that that is definitely the perfect message to uh, to 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 wrap with. Um, awesome. I'll say, uh, where can people watch uh, Godflow TV? Where can they learn more about Florida water issues? Uh, let's let's give some folks some some places to check okay. out. Well, I appreciate that, man. You can anybody can find me on social media in a number of ways. On Instagram, I'm, it's C A P T Benny Blanco. On on Facebook, it's Benny Blanco. Um, you can find the show on the show's website, guidingflowtv.com. Um, you can learn everything you ever could possibly want to know about Everglades restoration at captainsforcleanwater.org. Not to mention, you can buy an awesome hat become a member, get a newsletter, really get involved and help us save these places. You can go to evergladesfoundation.org and learn about what's happening happening on a legislative stand, uh, standpoint. 
and what you can do to help support us there. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of ways to get involved and uh, by starting in those places, you can make a huge impact right away. And, uh, and I appreciate anybody who, who does that. I mean, the cool thing about just learning a little bit is you know, the first thing you want to do when you learn something is you want to tell somebody. You know, when, I, when you're a kid, you learn two plus two is four, you come home and mommy, mommy, mommy. You know what two plus two is? It's four. You know, so go on CaptainChapingWall.org and learn about what's going on in every place and the successes. And, and the first thing you want to do is tell your fishing buddies, you know, this is what happened. And then before you know it, 